let us go ahead and move into our teaching for today. We are continuing in our uh, series on the life of David. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 5 today, and this is a really exciting point in this story and in this series, because this is where we finally see the fulfillment of God's promises and what David has longed for and what Israel has needed and longed for as David is finally established as king over the nation of Israel. So we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5 today. And today I'm just going to be reading verses 1 through 5. So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 5 today. If you want to turn there and follow along. If you have trouble finding it, that's okay, because we'll have the verses on the screens next to me so you can read there. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and I'm just going to read the first five verses. All right. Well, if we're all ready, let's go ahead and begin as we read here in this uh, keystone passage of Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over, all, over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began his reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So like I said, this is the chapter that covers the beginning of David's reign. Today we're just looking at those first five verses, but uh, over the course of today and next week, uh, I might even push it into a third week, we're going to be looking at chapter five here. Uh, I told Eli this morning, whenever I was putting out my sermon, I said this is one of those that I just, I was wrestling with and struggling with and literally on my, as I was driving here in, the, in my truck, decided to change everything. And so, uh, and, and so I, because I just... Uh, I, I want to take my time here in this passage. There are just uh, some, there's a lot going on, there, and there are some big ideas. Uh, as this passage, what it does here, in those first five verses, it tells us what's happening, and as we're going to see over the next few weeks, it just gives us a couple of episodes that are, uh, that are crucial to understanding the meaning and significance of David's kingship. Because this was, like I said, a, a keystone moment, a pivotal moment, important moment, not just in David's life, but in the life of Israel and even in the history of redemption, the history of what God was doing in, uh, in the world. Where you go back and read English legend, you might remember, or maybe you're familiar with the story of King Arthur. Right? King Arthur was uh, the most famous of all lore in British literature. And according to English legend, uh, it is said that the, that the Latin phrase rex condom, Rexe Futurus, is carved on King Arthur's gravestone. What that Latin phrase means is the once and future king. The reason that this was carved on Arthur's gravestone is because, once again, according to legend and lore, there was this uh, belief 
that Arthur had gone to the magic, magical isle of Avalon, swearing that he would return one day to finally vanquish all of his enemies. Because he had been out of battle while he was gone, an enemy had come in, it was actually his nephew, had come in and taken over uh, the kingdom, uh, but Arthur uh, vowed that he was going to come back uh, because he was wounded, so he goes to Avalon, or Avalor, and uh, he vows that he's going to, uh, wait, did I say Avalor or Avalon? Avalon. Yeah, Avalor is uh, uh, Elena of the Av- <laughs> That's a Disney Plus show that my daughter watches. Uh, yeah. Okay, not Avalor. Avalon. Anyway, he's going to come back. And so this is why they call him the once and future king, because there's th- this belief that, that King Arthur, who is seen as the, the greatest king, right, the, the embodiment of all that it meant and that they hoped for and that they wanted in an English king, that he was going to return and establish his kingdom once again, therefore, the once and future king. Arthur, for them, was an archetypal king. What we mean by an archetypal king, or that he was the archetype of, the, of what they saw, is that he was the standard, like I said, the embodiment, the ideal model of British leadership. In the same way that Arthur was so important in uh, the British mind and, 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 and understanding what a English leader should be, so was King David an archetypal leader for Israel. He was seen as the embodiment, in his best moments, of what a leader and what a king over Israel should be. He was the, he was the archetype, a standard. His own kingship and rule really symbolized and pointed towards more than even his, his, just the basic facts of who he was and his rule because of his archetypal status. In this chapter of, like I said before, we can call it really royal episodes, these different pieces of what it meant and what was occurring as David became king teach us about the meaning of David's archetypal leadership, of his being an archetype king in Israel. Whenever I read it, I see three big reasons or three big things that we can learn from 2 Samuel chapter 5 here and, uh, and David's kingship and the establishment of his kingdom. I see three big things we can learn, and I see them in the three reasons that the, that the people of Israel finally accepted him as their king, which is the section we read before. They came to him and they said, here we are with your flesh and blood. That was one. They said, you were the one, even while Saul was king, who went out into battle and brought us back. That was number two. And then the third reason, they said, and because the Lord promised to you the kingdom. So in those three reasons, I think there's three big lessons for us to learn. And as I said before, I decided that I was going to uh, change everything this morning on the way here. And so today, we are only going to look at the first one. Today, we're only looking at the first one, and then next week, we'll try to cover the second two. So today, we're just going to be looking at that first one. So we're going to be looking at David's brotherhood, is what I want us to consider. David's brotherhood among the people of Israel. And then we're going to see how that points us forward to Christ's brotherhood. So David as the archetype, right, the type pointing us forward to something beyond himself. David's brotherhood pointing us forward to Christ's brotherhood. So let's begin by considering this. As I said before, it says that all the tribes of Israel come to David, and the first thing they open with is, here we are, your flesh and blood. It's really a beautiful scene, if you think about it, especially if you've been with us in this series for a while, or if you've read 1 and 2 Samuel, and you consider, remember the context of what led up to this moment here. 
all of the suffering, all of the struggle, all of the, the, the times of doubt that David had to go through, all of the turmoil that Israel and the, the tribes of Israel, the nation, had to go through, uh, the, the height of them in their excitement, establishing Saul as their king only for him to turn out to be a tyrant who was eventually oppressive to them, who had them under his thumb, who was oppressing them with, with taxation and with conscription of their sons into his military and their daughters to serve him and of their lands and of their livestock, right? So they have these lows, and then there are the battles uh, with the Philistines as Saul more or less was sometimes victorious and sometimes was dropping the ball in his responsibility to protect and provide for the people. And then all of the division that must have uh, been among the tribes over Saul and, uh, and the rivalry between Saul and David, right? And then even before this time here where they finally come to acknowledge him, the kingdom was divided. There was a civil war between the tribes of Israel as there was the puppet king Ishbosheth. Uh, who was raised up in contrast to David's kingship. So in spite of all that they've been through, the struggles, the highs and the lows and the victories and the defeats, we have this beautiful moment here where all the tribes come before him and they say, here we are. All the tribes arrive before the feet of their king and present themselves as loyal subjects as loyal people. It's a beautiful scene. I can't help, but as I read 2 Samuel chapter 5, um, in my mind, all the images of, of, of the different scenes from movies where there is a consummation or establishment of a kingdom, all of those different scenes come to my mind. You know, like, for example, in, in The Lion King, whenever you have Simba up on the rock, having established the, the kingdom once again, taking it away from the, from the evil tyrant who had been there before. Once before, whenever the tyrant was in control, the land was desolate. It was without life, right? Before, it was green when there was a good king in control, but now there's, there's no life at all. There, uh, all of the, the, the different uh, types of animals are, are scattered abroad in fear, but then whenever Simba returns, what happens? There is green. There is life. The land is flourishing. The sun is shining. And you see the zebras and the giraffes and the elephants and the gazelles all coming back together in unity. Why? Because there is a good king on the throne. You know, it's scenes like that or the scene in, uh, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, whenever Aragorn is finally, uh, it takes his throne as king over Gondor. And you have all the people and you have all these uh, different uh, tribes who are there before him. And there is life and there is hope. I can't help but imagine a similar scene whenever I look at this, and it says all those tribes. You just like imagine before how all the different uh, animals and lion king, they were scattered before, they were divided, hiding in fear, but then they come together. I almost imagine like that, like like Judah was, you know, the, the zebras, and Benjamin was the gazelles, and like all the, they, they come before David here in this moment of beauty and of life and of hope and flourishing. All of them come before David, and they say, here we are, your flesh and blood. It's beautiful. And here's what it means. I, I just I couldn't get over how they presented themselves to David, and especially how David received them. Here we are, your flesh and blood. There is so much importance in that opening. Here's what it means. Our, our first big point of really what is going to be a kind of a mini-series within our series but our point for today, the king is a brother of the people. That's what it means, and this is how they approach their new king, David, here. They approach him as a brother. They, see, they say, here we are, in other words, 
your family. Here we are, your flesh and blood. They come to him as, as a brother or, or almost, a, or maybe even in a, in a fatherly, but in somewhat, but in, in, in a certain definite sense, a familial tone. They come to him and say, here we are, your family. Here we are, your flesh and blood. So the first thing we learn is that the king is a brother of the people. Now, here's why this caught my attention and why I, I couldn't get over it. And the longer that I sat on it and, and kind of, you know, chewed on it, uh, the more and more importance I realized in it and what it means, not just for Israel and David's kingship, but in so much larger sense is what it means. Because here's why it's so important. Whereas in every other society in ancient history, and even going up until today, we can see this in different nations or many empires. Whereas in every other ancient society, the king was seen as a divine, they claimed kinship and brotherhood with their king. This was a feature in the ancient world. Like I said, and today we only see it in some places, at least explicitly. There are many countries uh, that exist today, America might be one of them, or close to being one of them, where there is a cult around the state, uh, though it is not explicitly said. But there are other nations that we can see today which still uh, claim somewhat of a divine state for their leader. This, we see this in the dictators of North Korea. They claim somewhat of a divine status to their leadership over the nation. And I seen as like odd and strange. But back then, it was not a bug. It was a feature. Every nation saw their king or their emperor as being a, you might say, divine son. He was like a Hercules, right? You remember Hercules? Hercules was, was the son of Zeus, and so he was, he was a man among the people, but he really wasn't one of the people because he was a son of the god, the god Zeus. They saw their kings and their Caesars and their emperors in very much the same way. They were demigods. They were, yes, they had the flesh and blood of men, but in their essence, they weren't really men. They were gods. They were not representatives of the gods. They were gods on earth. They were demigods, the son of the gods. This is how they saw Caesar Augustus, right? The Caesar after Julius Caesar, that he was, um, that he was not just a political figure, but he was a divine figure. This is the way that Nebuchadnezzar saw himself. If you remember the stories uh, and, and Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember all the things that Nebuchadnezzar did? You remember when he, he made that giant statue of himself? And do you remember you know, all these different things that he did? Why did he do those things? Because he thought he was a god. He thought he had a divine nature. And to him, the evidence of his divine nature, which is how all these kings thought, was that the evidence was, well, I'm the king. <laughs> well, I'm the emperor. Look at all that I have. Look at my power. Look at my wealth. Right? Look at all this. Obviously, the gods favor me and see me as one of their own versus the rest of you people, which is why the gods have placed me over you. This was the feature of every society. But in Israel, you see, this is why this is huge. In Israel, they come before David, and they do not see a demigod. They do not see one of the gods. They do not see someone who has the form of flesh and blood, but, uh, but really the nature of the divine. They come before David, their king that they're submitting to, and they say, here we are, your flesh and blood, your family, your brothers. It's incredible. Other ancient kings identified themselves with the divine, but David 
recognizes himself, and we can see that it was not just in himself, but among all the people. But David, in contrasting, seeing himself as a part of the divine or a branch of the divine on earth in Israel, David instead is a leader under God. So in all the other nations, there was the gods and the sort of the branch of the gods on earth who was their king or emperor. But in Israel, there is God, then the king, who is under God, and he serves as a leader of the people. David was not one of the gods. He was not a demigod. He was under God as their king. They come to him and they say, here's our brother. We are your brothers. And he agrees with it, right? Because as we read on, there's nothing that states something different. That David rejected their statement of brotherhood in a familial relation. He accepts their presenting themselves and also implying who he was by that statement. He accepts it. He sees himself as not one of the gods or equal with God, but under the authority of God and a brother, i.e. equal of the people. This is absolutely revolutionary. This moment, in those, in those small, simple words, changed world history. This is why I think it's so important that we, that we pause and take notice of this. There was no other society in, uh, that, that had this view at the time, and there has never been another society which has come to this view without a heritage that traces back to David whether that be the Jewish people or whether that be a nation that had a heavy influence of Christianity drawing its heritage back to the Jewish scriptures and to David, the Jewish king. There has ne- I'll, I'm going to say it again to make it clear. There has never, ever been a nation that came to this conclusion without what happened here at Hebron. Therefore, what they understand And what David understands for himself is that he is not the divine king. Rather, he is, in a sense, a steward of divine kingship. He lives and serves and rules underneath the authority of God, but not with that authority claimed in himself and his person. In other words, the office of king over Israel is not even his, but he gets to to sit as a steward in that seat. He is not the owner, but he is a steward. He is not the divine king. That is God. He, but he is to act in an office on earth underneath God's authority. This is what makes David so different from Saul and from the kings of the other nations. Remember that Saul started out his, his rule and his kingship with God's blessing on him because he was anointed by Samuel, and at first, Saul understood himself, and he was anointed by by Samuel to be a similar kind of king, a king who lived under the authority of God. But what do we slowly see happening in Saul's life? He drifted away from that. Saul slowly drifted away from that understanding in his life, and he started to uh, commit actions by not seeking God's guidance in battle or by outright disobeying God's word that had been brought to him by Samuel, or but, but by doing things that slowly and surely proved that Saul had no longer seen him as a steward of the divine kingship, as a representative, or as one who, stood, who sat under the authority of God, but he started to see himself as the ultimate ruler. 
He started to see himself as the absolute authority, as he no longer sought God's guidance, as he ignored God's guidance, as he did not submit himself to the law of God, but instead saw himself and whatever he desired to be the law, to be the absolute. This is the reason that Saul became the tyrant that he was, because he wears the that separation that should have existed in his mind between God and the divine and who he was as a king under God slowly started to switch and slowly started to melt together to where he saw himself just like one of the kings of the other nations. But David is different. Notice, too, a difference in the attitude of the people. Whenever we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, whenever, uh, whenever the king come before Samuel demanding a king, they're tired of the old system of judges that had been uh, existing as like the civic law and leadership in Israel, where there was all this division, there was all these different ju- judges and so on. Instead, they wanted a king over themselves, and so they come to Samuel demanding that they have a king. So this is what leads to Saul becoming king. But whenever they come to him, it, it, Samuel uses a very interesting phrase there in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that describes what they wanted. They didn't just want a king, but it says that they wanted a king like all the other nations. They looked at all the nations around them, the Philistines and, and the others, and they saw their kings, and they saw how they led with absolute authority, the, the supposed prestige of those kings. And it says, they came to Samuel, once again, wanting a king like all the other nations. And so, though for a while at first it started out okay, they were all right with Saul becoming a king like the other nations, who saw himself as the divine, who saw himself as the absolute, as the authoritarian ruler. But whenever they come to David, ready to receive his kingship, they have a different chain. They have a different attitude. They come to him with a different desire. They don't come to David expecting him to be a king like the other nations. They come to him how? Here we are, your flesh and blood. Radically, radically different. Whenever they came to Saul, they wanted a king like the other nations. But when they come to David, they see him as a brother. The king is a brother of the people. Now, what does this mean? If I can make it just a little bit more explicit what what this means. It means this. David is not an absolute. We see, once again in history, we see absolute monarchies where a king holds all the power, where there might be some laws of the land, but the king is above those laws. The king, the monarch or, 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 or queen, is the absolute, and there is nothing that stands above that king or queen in terms of authority, whether it be a law, whether it be a legislative body, uh, or whether it be a god. The king is the absolute, but not so in Israel. The king of Israel is not to be an absolute who stood in, with, with all authority and no authority over himself over Israel. Instead, what the king of Israel was to be and what David was, one of the things that made him an archetypal king is that he was a ruled ruler. Does that make sense? He was a ruler who was also himself ruled by God. David, as king, was a man of authority. He still had great authority. Let's not, let's not uh, right, like miss that part, okay? He was a man of authority, but he was a man of authority who was under authority. You see the great difference in that. He was not an absolute. He was not an authoritarian or totalitarian. He was a ruled ruler, a man of authority under the authority of God. Therefore, 
as king over Israel, he did not have absolute power, but instead his power could only go as far as the law of God told him to. The king of Israel was not just under God, with him able to say, well, this is what God told me to do and none of you can say any different. He was under the authority of God with the law of God clearly dictating what his power was, how far he could go, where he could not go, right? What was justice, what was injustice, what was right for him, what was wrong for him. He was a man of authority under authority, under the authority of God and under the authority of the law of God. Once again, this is huge in comparison to every other nation that existed at the time. There was nothing close to this anywhere else and for much, much of world history. We go many centuries later and we see, we can see in the history of Christianity and the church as it uh, grew in the Roman Empire, as it eventually changed the fabric of the Roman Empire and changed even the course of history as this idea that the king over a nation should not sit as an absolute over that nation continued to grow in Christian theology. And as it, as it was continued to be developed, as, as theologians looked at the scriptures and they, they saw all of the different places where there were laws for the king in Deuteronomy and the law of God, their expectations for how the king ought to rule. They looked at the story of David and saw how uh, the king over Israel is not meant to be an absolute. And they looked at the New Testament and saw how it said that civil magistrates are to lead in their jobs as servants under God, right? which means submitted to God. They looked at all these things and drew out, drew out a theology of understanding this is how society ought to work, that the king or the president or whoever else is not an absolute but instead exists under an authority. One of the crucial moments in history as this idea was developed came in 1644, there's a Scottish theologian and Presbyterian pastor named Samuel Rutherford. And he published a book which would have profound influence on history, a book named Lex Rex. I've got a lot of Latin in this sermon today. <laughs> Lex Rex. What that book was about and what he argued was that the princes of the world uh, rule beneath the law. You see, the meaning of Lex Rex, the title of his book, was the law is king. The king is not king. The law is king. Because they still had absolute monarchs who saw themselves, whether they were King Charles, King John, or, or, or so on, who saw themselves as the absolute authority. Whatever, whatever they desired, whatever they decreed, and whatever they said was right, was obviously the will of God because, well, they were the king, and so no one could argue with it or go against it. What Rutherford instead argued in Lex Rex and, and f drawing from Sinai and drawing from uh, the law of God, from the example of David and from the rest of the Old Testament and into the New, what he saw and understood instead was, no, you are not the absolute, but you exist under the authority of God and you, you only rule uh, with the limitation, under the limitations of the law, the law of God and the law of the land. In other words, the law was king. You see, this idea, once again, drawn from passages such as this one, led to such foundational ideas that even led to the birth of the United States. And our idea that there is no man or figure who stands in absolute authority over the people. Instead, the people have liberties given to them by God. 
They have freedoms and rights given to them by God, right, and not by any law that a king or president demands, and that the king and that the president, that legislators and whoever else are bound by the law themselves and do not stand over it. All of this goes back to, and we can see hints of it in the words, here we are, your flesh and blood. You see, the same law that applied to all the people of Israel and that they all lived under and that they all obeyed applied to David as well. Because he, after all, was just their flesh and blood, chosen by God to be a leader over them, but not an absolute over them. David lived under that law as well. This concept, whenever it was applied in Israel, brought flourishing. For the first time in Israel's history, we see all of the, na- all of the tribes united into one kingdom. We see flourishing in that as we're going to look at the rest of this chapter in the next week or so, the final enemies and those who have been threatening the land that God had promised to his people and the lives of Israel and his various tribes are, are vanquished, are done away with. So now the people are living in unity, they're living in peace and, with, and, and prosperity as they live under this king who himself lives under the authority of God. But not just in Israel, we can see, once again, looking at history, how those nations, those societies that adopted this concept also saw liberty and flourishing come to them as well. It should be a warning to us in our society who are slowly moving away from these concepts, who are slowly moving away from the idea, and we can see our leaders who are slowly moving away from the understanding that they exist as leaders under a law, and not just the laws written by men, but leaders under the law of God, leaders under the authority of God. There's a window that is closing, because as our culture here in the West, and especially in America as well, while we still have many of the images, and while we still have some of the symbolisms of the Christian foundation and of the Christian ideals that led to liberty and flourishing for many, many people, they are those symbols are empty. They don't carry the meaning and significance and understanding that they once used to. That the leader, like I said before, whether that be a justice, a judge, a president, a legislator, or whoever, or governor, whoever else, exists under the authority of God, the symbol's empty. Now we can see many, many examples of leaders on, on, in every political party, on either side, who see themselves instead as the absolute as someone who really gets to play with the rules and toy with the rules and get to try, to try to break through them because, after all, who's going to do anything about it? Who will hold them to account? They do not see themselves as serving under the authority of God. Who, they do not see themselves, as it says in Romans chapter 13, servants of the Lord. Instead, they just see the Lord as something to be a servant of themselves, as a way to gain uh, popularity and votes from different uh, political sub-demographics. This is the kind of leadership that we live with in our country today. It is one that is drifting away from that concept that was adopted that brought liberty and flourishing, like I said before. One of my favorite thinkers and writers, a man named Oz Guinness, described it this way. He said, we live in a cut flower society. You know, uh, Valentine's Day was just a few weeks ago, and I'm sure... uh, 
hopefully, hopefully all of you ladies, but I'm sure that many of you ladies received some uh, flowers on Valentine's Day. Ooh, I'm seeing some looks. I'm seeing some looks. All right, guys. All right, better late than never, okay? This is your hint. Um, but hopefully many of you ladies, if not all of you, received some flowers for Valentine's Day. You get those flowers and you put them up in a vase and water on the on a counter or a table, somewhere else to display them, and they look absolutely beautiful. But what's the reality? The reality is that they are dying. The reality, which, which shows itself in just a few days or maybe a couple of weeks, as they slowly turn brown and wilt, they lose the color and the vibrancy and the life they once had, fades away. Why? Because they have been cut away from their source of life. So, you see, the beauty the flourishing lasts for only a little while while the flower is cut away from its source of life, but it will not last forever. And friends, Oz is right. We live in a cut flower society. So what do we do? What does this mean? What this means for us is that while the window is still open, it is closing, but while the window is still opening and we have the opportunity and the ability and the voice, hold your leaders to account. Hold your leaders to account. Do not turn a blind eye to, do not excuse, and do not rationalize away their breaking the law of God or even breaking the laws of our land, but instead hold them to account. Friends, it is not unreasonable at all. In fact, it's a lie of secularization to say that it would be unreasonable for us to expect our civic leaders, our business leaders, Uh, leaders in any area of society, to not submit to the authority of God. Instead, as God's people who are called to be salt and light in our world, as God's people who are meant to, who are called to uh, spread the kingdom of God and rule of God in our world, we ought to hold our leaders to account. We do so not, not because we are the authority of God on earth, but because we are the heralds of the news trying to call people, even our leaders, even our Caesars, to submit to God's authority. Let's draw this down to an even more personal level. This is something that we need in our, in our civics and in our political life, absolutely, and, and, and we are perhaps in the 11th hour of needing this kind of action. But you know what? Maybe even more important than that, we are in need of this kind of accountability in our homes, Leaders of homes, fathers, husbands, wives and mothers. Are you the kind of leader who in your home sees yourself as a steward of the authority which God has given you over that home? In a sense, uh, David was king over Hebron. And in in, in a sense, David has established, I mean, God has established you as king over, you know, wherever your address is, whatever Hebron he has put you in. That, that's the, the little realm of authority that he has given you, not so that you might be the absolute over it. You are not the absolute over your property, and you are not the absolute over your children. But instead, just as David was the steward of, God's, of, of the divine kingship, you are the steward of all that God has put in your little kingdom. But do you see yourself that way? Do you see your children as ultimately belonging to God, and you the authority over them living under the authority of God? Husbands, in the way that you lead your family, not just in your, your children, but also your wife, in the way that you love, protect, 
and serve, the way that you lead? Do you see, do you see yourself as the absolute over her and your children, or instead do you see yourself as a, as a man of authority in the household under the authority of God? We need this kind of leadership and understanding that we all, in whatever area and domain of leadership that God has given us, are ruled rulers, just like David. Before we ever saw a decline in democracy, or before we ever saw a decline in covenantalism and, and, and the understanding of lex rex and so on, there was a decline in the households. So yes, we do need to hold our civic leaders to account, but... We really have no business in trying to do that if we have not yet first held ourselves to account in the way that we lead in our households. So this applies to the household. It also applies to the church. As engaged members of a church, you who are members of Redeemer City Church or those of you who plan on or, or are considering membership over here at Redeemer City Church, do you see it as one of your responsibilities to not just joyfully follow the leadership of the church, that'd be me, the elders, the staff, right? To not just joyfully follow, right? But to also hold to account. To make it easy for us as your leaders to joyfully follow God's law as we call you to follow God's law. Do you see that as one of your responsibilities as well? Because we can look at dozens upon dozens upon dozens of examples of all the havoc wreaked by sin, whenever churches do not hold their leaders, or ministries do not hold their leaders to account, to lead as those who are led, and to rule as those who are ruled. This applies to that household, this applies to the church, and this applies to any other sphere of society which Christ claims lordship over. Hint, that means all of it. Our homes, our churches, our businesses, our schools, and yes, even the highest offices of the land. Christ claims ownership over it all. Therefore, we as his heralds, filled with the Spirit of God, are to see that all of those offices and that all of those spheres and that all of those households come before our Lord the King and joyfully submit to him. And whenever we do this, there will be flourishing. Just as the pride lands in the Lion King went from a place that was desolate, that was without life, to one that was filled with life whenever there's a good king. Friends, so were your homes and your households. If they are struggling now, what they need is godly leadership. We need that in our churches. We need that in our neighborhoods. Because whenever there is a man of authority who lives under the authority of God, according to his truth and his justice, then it is a joy to follow that leadership, a joy to submit to that kind of a leader, and it brings flourishing to us all. I mentioned earlier that it's incredible that the people come to David and say, here we are, your flesh and blood. But it is also remarkable that David receives them, calling him that. You can go on and read this, read the rest of the chapter, read the next few chapters. At no point does David say, how dare you guys call me that? Don't you see that I'm better than you? <laughs> Don't you see that I am the chosen, the anointed? No, he receives their word. In other words, he sees themselves and he agrees with their, their word, that he is their brother. David's humility in his brotherhood is remarkable. 
like I said, absolutely unique up until this point in history. But it's only a glimpse, and it's only a, an ounce of the magnitude of humility, humility that we see in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, who is not just a man living under the authority of God, but he was the God-man living under the authority of the Father. Jesus, who was equal with the Father, though he did not count his equality with the Father as something to be grasped and held onto, Paul says, instead humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, coming down to this earth in the form of man, taking on flesh and blood, so that while still being God, he might be able to come to us and say, here I am, your flesh and blood. So that he might come to us and, and call himself our brother, though he is our God and our king. In Matthew chapter 12, verses, in verse 46, it says, While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. They thought he had lost his mind. Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. David's humility is something to be admired, but Jesus' humility is something to be in awe and wonder over. But his humility did not stop there. Because as Paul said, he took, he took on not just the form of a servant, he took on the death of a slave. He took on what was the most humiliating and what was the worst of punishments and condemnations. He took on the Roman cross. The cross was the execution that was saved only for the worst of the worst. The Roman cross was an execution which was seen as so bad and so shameful that it was actually illegal for Roman citizens to be crucified. It was instead one that was saved only for the barbarians and for slaves. But this is the death that Jesus, in his humility in becoming man, but also in his, in his infinite humility, it was this death that Jesus accepted for himself. Why? So that we might be his brothers. So that we might be his brothers and his sisters. The point? Christ the King is the kinsman redeemer of all in his family. They looked at David and they said, you are, if I could rephrase it, they said, you are our brother. You are the one who rescued us from our enemies. You are the one who has delivered us from all that threatened us. And it was true when they said that, but how much greater can we say so about Jesus? He is our king who we look at, and, we, and because of his humility, we might have the audacity and the boldness to look at him and say, he is our brother. We might have the audacity and the boldness to look at him, and as Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, he is our co-heir, right? All that is going to be is his inheritance in the kingdom. For those who are his brothers in the kingdom, we will be co-heirs as well. We can look at him and say, you are our brother and you are our redeemer because you have delivered us from all of our distress you are the one who redeemed us even from death itself. Not because you claim victory with a sword, but you claim victory in your own body. This is the kind of king that we follow. This is the king 
whom is, is not just the archetype, but is the true king, the true embodiment, the reality of all that David and any other great leader or great, meter, uh, great leader in mythology and lore could point forward to. Christ, our king, who is our kinsman redeemer for all those in his family. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And Father, I just ask for the help of your spirit. Lord, let your Holy Spirit move in this room right now so that this, these words of the gospel might, like a seed, sink into the soil of our hearts. Let that soil in our hearts be soft and ready to receive that seed. Lord, I ask that your spirit would drive away the birds of the air and uh, prune away the thorns that might choke out that seed. Lord, let it hush. By your spirit, would you hush the doubting words of our mind speaking to us, say, but not so for me. Would you hush the words of the enemy that tell us, but this couldn't be true for you. Lord, these words that Jesus says to us that we, your disciples, are your brothers and your sisters. That as your word says, that we might be co-heirs. That we who are, who have been magnificent sinners, who have proven a record of disobedience and rebellion and of weakness and of fallenness. Lord, that because of our our King, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, all that, that record of wrongs and sins is washed away. That he took on that servanthood which required of him death for our sins, his death for our death, so that his life might be our life. Father, let the seeds of these words of life go deep into our hearts. Plant there and then bring about fruit. Lord, in your goodness as king, would you reign over our lives and bring the flourishing that you bring, the goodness that you bring, the, the beauty that you bring, the truth and the justice in our lives that you bring. So that we may then be heralds of this word. So we might be servants living under your authority, applying your word and your kingship to our homes, to our families, to our workplaces and neighborhoods. And that we might even call, in all humility, call our civic leaders to obey you and submit to you as well. That they might receive life. And so that life and flourishing might extend by the virtue of their good rule. Lord, we pray all these things not in the confidence of our works and not in the confidence of our, of our own words, Lord, but in the confidence that comes from knowing that our King is risen and He reigns. We pray this in His name. Amen.